today's scripture, uh, for or the sermon for today, comes from three different scripture passages, starting with Hosea two sixteen through twenty. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and and you shall know the Lord. The next is Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And lastly, we have Malachi two thirteen through 16. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. While the screen goes up, Let's pray. God, you are righteous. You are mighty. You are holy and glorious. And though you spoke all things into existence and sustained them by the word of your power, you are near. You are kind. You are Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, steadfast love to thousands. Help us to see your joy, your pleasure today. Help us know your comfort and your peace. Help us turn to you. Send your spirit upon us that this word would call us to faithfulness through our crucified and risen King Jesus, by the power of His Spirit poured out on us, that we 
could be faithful to you and produce godly offspring for many generations to the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. Marriage is one of the, my favorite things to talk about. One of the most exciting things I get to partake in today. Matt and Amy are getting married. How exciting. I love to do marriage counseling. I missed out on a couple of you due to difficult circumstances, but marriage is something that just delights my heart. And I think it's because it is rooted in something greater than us all that I want to talk about today. Marriage vows have really lost their substance in recent years. They just don't have the same weight, the same sacredness, the same durability that they once did. Traditional vows were written with seriousness in mind to tie you to a history that would help you last longer than your immediate passions. And they kept God in sight, showing you that your marriage is so much bigger than yourself. And they gave you hope that these words would inspire longevity by holding you accountable to a promise you made. Today, people love to write their own marriage vows. And many of them, I'm not judging, I don't know all of them that you did, but many of them that I've heard can be boiled down to basically saying, you're great, my love for you is great, we're great together, and so this is going to be great. Kind of lacking. But listen to the depth of these traditional wedding vows. I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. To love and cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I pledge myself to you. If I could recommend choosing some marriage vows for anyone, I would try to always steer you back to these. Or I might encourage something a little more creatively worded, like this really cool old Celtic wedding vow. I vow to you the first cut of my meat. The first sip of my wine. From this day, it shall be only your name I cry out in the night and into your eyes that I smile each morning. I shall be a shield for your back as you are for mine. Not shall a grievous word be spoken about us, for our marriage is sacred between us. No stranger shall bear my, hear my grievance above and beyond this. I will cherish and honor you through this life into the next. Good vows make a promise that lasts into eternity and are founded on something that existed before your relationship ever existed. It puts the source of our love for one another in God and the hope of our future together in His providence because He is the only one who is faithful, who remains faithful. This isn't just true for marriages. Many of you in this room, probably with all the kids, the majority of you in this room are not married. But this call to us 
is true for all of us. If you want to endure in joyful faithfulness in God's world, you must found your hope in his finished work and his pledged love. And marriage is just God's design to be a living, breathing example to all of us so that we can be inspired to faithfulness to him. God is a great husband who vows always to give us what's best for his people. The first of his choicest fruits. He delights in his bride and protects her. He promises to be with her through thick and thin. He vigorously defends her against any negative influence. He will be with her until she breathes her last. And God made his vows... When he brought his people, Israel, through the Red Sea, he met them at the mountain. He brought their leader, Moses, up the mountain. And he made a commitment to love them and cherish them. He laid out the expectations of their faithfulness back to him. And he swore by his own name, his eternal faithfulness. In Exodus 34, he says, I am The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the foundation of God's relationship with his people. He pledges by his own name, his own character, that he will be forever merciful and gracious. He will not get angry quickly. He will pour out his delight, his love on his bride, staying faithful to her, even forgiving her when she's wayward, welcoming her back into his arms. But he warns. He warns that he will not be a tool of her selfish pleasure. He will not be a doormat for her wanton desires. He promises he will be faithful. But if she remains obstinately unfaithful, continually unrepentant, there will be consequences. It's this vow that lies behind this collection of books we call minor prophets. But faithful Jewish people, after they were all written, referred to them as the book of the twelve. There are twelve different prophets speaking to different groups at at various times, but all together they tell us one story of God's faithfulness through Israel's unfaithfulness. Together, we hear one message through these books of God's loving and faithful voice crying out to his bride, turn from your spiritual idolatry, adultery. They sound so similar. Turn from your spiritual adultery and delight in God, your faithful husband. Turn from your spiritual adultery and delight in God, your faithful husband. And we don't really have time to go through every one of these books. Jake sent me a message this morning saying, I can't wait to hear your 12-book sermon. And I thought he said 12-hour sermon, so I thought I had a little more time. But we'll try to keep it short. We've already gone through all of these books a couple of years ago, one at a time. So if you want to dig deeper, you can check out the archives on our website. 
But today we're taking them all together as one. The book of the twelve. All of them brought together as one to share one message to his people. The first six books all together emphasize the spiritual adultery of Israel. Hosea through Micah calling out her sin, warning her punishment is coming if you don't turn. And then the next three books lay out God's case for a righteous divorce. Nahum through Zephaniah are filled with promises of judgment. It's right on their doorstep. And then finally, the last three books promise a divine vow renewal. Haggai through Malachi give greater hope of a restored relationship with God. We're going to take them all together as one. Spanning 400 years of history through Warnings of sin and adultery to punishment for that exile into Babylon. But then God's faithfulness to keep his promises and restore his people. So we begin this sweeping overview by jumping back to Hosea chapter 2. Joel read it for us, but it's good to be reading the word of the Lord repeatedly. So let's go back to verse 16. Hosea writes... To an adulterous people. In that day declares the Lord. You will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by my by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. With the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens. The creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow. The sword. And war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. If you're familiar with the book of Hosea, I know one of our community groups is going through it, the book of Hosea. So you, this might be a little bit repetitive for you. The first four chapters of the book of Hosea use Hosea's own marriage as a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. When God called Hosea, he told him to go marry a prostitute. Very strange command. He said, pledge your life to this faithless woman. Promise her the first cuts of your meat and the first sips of your wine. Love her, cherish her, and forgive her, knowing she will not be faithful. Just a little side tangent, pro tip here. God is making a point about his relationship with Israel. This isn't wise pre-marriage counsel, giving you the, the right to go and marry anyone you want if they're unfaithful, hoping you can bring them back. That's not the purpose of marriage. God told Hosea to marry this promiscuous woman, not to rescue her, but because through her, The people would have this example. They would see this terrible wife and have a clear image of their own unfaithfulness. You see, sin isn't just breaking God's law. It's breaking his heart. 
Sin is turning your back on God, the one who is the source of all the greatest pleasures, the one who promises abundant provision, who guarantees perfect perfect protection. Sin is spiritual adultery. Idolatry is adultery. Seeking comfort, pleasure, provision, protection, rest, peace in anything but him whom you are pledged to. Israel was told in the law in Deuteronomy, don't trust your riches. Don't trust governments and their armies. Don't build relationships with other people who aren't fully devoted to me. God will be their husband. But that was really difficult for them. They wanted the nations to think they were pretty. They wanted affirmations from the world. You are a strong person. You are a great nation. They wanted to look good in the eyes of their neighbors. This is the picture that Hosea's marriage paints. God wanted an intimate relationship with his people. To know each other deeply. Like this sweet and secure marriage Where the only affirmation you need is from one another. But no matter how much he provides for her, she keeps walking away, seeking affection, seeking comfort in the arms of another man. But Hosea forgives and welcomes her back. And she does it again. And then the book of Hosea in the final chapters, five through the end, shift focus to what looks like a court scene. God is beginning his court proceedings toward divorce. He lays out the case that he has been repeatedly faithful over and over and forgiving and Israel remains stubbornly adulterous. And following this book, along with Hosea, the next five books continue this theme of Israel's unfaithfulness. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah warn that Israel has not trusted God. They have not been faithful. They present the case that God is perfectly righteous and they are guilty till death do us part is just about to come. If they don't turn, God uses Obadiah's message to the Edomites to show how embarrassing it is to be married to Israel, that even the wicked Edomites are mocking them. God reveals to Jonah how bad it is in Israel when the Ninevites, the Assyrians, hear God's voice and turn back to God before Israel will. All of these Prophets urging Israel, turn, turn, turn back to your husband. As Hosea ends in chapter 14. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity except what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows That we made with our lips. Though each one of these books has a message of sin and judgment. There's always this offer of hope. If they turn. Because God is faithful to his vows to forgive. 
But as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, sometimes things have to get a lot worse before they get any better. The next three books have much less hope and far more judgment as God proceeds with his righteous divorce. Nahum is the first of the prophets in this section, and he has a very grim message. Chapter 1 of Nahum, verse verse 3 says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The imagery is of this army, this the, of chariots coming down across the, the valley, stirring up all the dust. He picks up on God's vows in Exodus 34, reminding them, yes, God is slow to anger. He has been very slow to anger. But now the patience is up. Jonah had shared a message of God's love for the Ninevites, and they did. They turned to God, but it didn't last long. And now Nahum is bringing a message of judgment on Nineveh, showing how serious God is when he says he's great in power and will by no means clear the guilty. God will not let his loving faithfulness, his kind forgiveness be mocked and taken advantage of. But before Anyone in Israel can stand back and, and get excited that Nineveh is about to finally be destroyed, thinking they, get, they got what they deserve. Habakkuk sounds the alarm and tells them the same Babylonians that destroyed the Assyrians, they've set their sights on Jerusalem next. Israel looked at Nineveh like they were some promiscuous woman and God through Habakkuk is telling them you are just the same. You are worse. They didn't even have a covenant with me. But you do. You are mocking our covenant together. Habakkuk highlights God's righteousness in wiping Jerusalem out. Zephaniah cries out that this day of the Lord that all the prophets warned of has finally arrived the end of God's patience, the end of God's mercy, the end of their relationship has come. Instead of killing a bull or a lamb or a goat, God is going to punish them directly. Like Hosea's wife, God had forgiven them over and over and over, and they still mock his kindness. Even through that, God is still faithful to invite them back. Nahum had started with utter gloom, but each prophet after him offers a little more hope. At the end of Zephaniah, he gives a glimpse into what God still promises. He doesn't destroy them completely. He plans to chase after them and bring them back himself and make them faithful. You see, the problem with sinful humanity is that we are unable to turn to God. No matter how much he tells us, this is the right way to go. No matter how many blessings he offers us, if we come into his presence, we still won't turn. We still seek affirmation, affection, pleasure, comfort from the world. God needs to do something to break into our hearts, to give us a heart that desires his affection, that craves his pleasure, that melts into his comforting arms. 
Zephaniah doesn't tell us how it's going to happen, but he paints a beautiful picture of what it will look like when God finally restores his bride. He says in chapter 3, verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Like a husband and a wife who have long been separated, finally reunited. There will be embracing and singing and dancing together. It will be like marriage is supposed to be. Full of love and affection and peace and pleasure and comfort. A beautiful, full body and soul dance of love for one another. God made a vow. And He will see it through. And so in the last three chapters, last three prophets, the focus shifts more to what God is going to do to bring about this beautiful relationship. Those first six books warned of a coming judgment because of their sins. The middle three books showed that judgment happening, taking the people off into a foreign land, into Babylon. And now these final three books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, Occur after God has brought the people back. Telling them God was faithful to keep his promises. He preserved his people and brought them back into the land. Now it's time for a divine vow renewal to remind them of his faithfulness. And Haggai jumps in to tell the people that simply being back in the land isn't enough. They were brought back to have a relationship with God in his place. But the temple was destroyed. So it's time to get to work and build God's home again. So that you can rebuild your relationship with him. But the sad message of Haggai is that even though they're back in the land, they still don't desire this intimate relationship with God. Throughout all of the minor prophets, you're supposed to turn the page to the next book and say, maybe this time they will turn back to their God. Maybe this one, and they don't. And you get to the end and you're realizing they're not turning back to their husband. Around every corner, they continue to run away. God removed them from the land. It looked like they were ready to come back. He brought them back in. And just like Hosea's wife, she's just not that into him. Zechariah joins Haggai, calling them, turn back to God. He says, you're not listening. You are just like the previous generation. In vivid imagery, then, he explains, you guys can't do it. But I am going to send a king who is going to come and win back the affections of his bride forever. Those that turn and delight in him will be welcomed into his kingdom. Those who remain unfaithful will be cast out, punished for eternity. And finally, Malachi ends right where we started. The people didn't listen to Haggai or Zechariah. They're still unfaithful. They deserve judgment again. But they don't really understand. They ask, why? What have we done? Why isn't God accepting us? So he explains the plight of their marriage in Malachi chapter 2. 
says this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. He wants more worshipers. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Simply showing up at God's house was not enough to restore intimacy. Simply living together doesn't show what marriage was supposed to be all about. They brought so much dishonor to God's name by coming to his house and offering unacceptable sacrifices and really getting to the heart of it, he says, they mock him with their terrible marriages. Men treating their wives poorly. They weren't caring for them, just casting them out whenever they felt like their wife wasn't giving them enough. This is a terrible injustice in itself, but even worse, Because marriage is supposed to be a reflection of God's love for his people, his faithfulness to Israel, his delight in her, their mutual pleasure together, their ongoing affection for one another. These divorces were proclaiming a false message about God's love. Even when they were faithful, even when they were cast into exile, God didn't abandon them. He pursued them. He went after them and brought them back. He was always faithful to his own vows. And so to make his bride faithful, God's not going to divorce her. He says the only thing that can fix this broken marriage is if I put it to death. It needs to start over. Malachi 4 says, the day is coming when God is going to wipe out this relationship completely, burning it to stubble. But again, that's not the end. He's going to send a messenger like Elijah to announce the day of renewal. When after this renewal comes, the whole family of God will be restored. And this is how the Old Testament ends. With this longing for someone to come and make intimacy with God possible. And then next week, finally. I don't know if you guys are more excited or Jake and I are more excited to get to the New Testament. We finally turn the page and see God's plan to restore his marriage unfold. Jesus is the promised king who came to seek his bride. And lead them back to the Father. He alone is the true Israel. Representing all people in faithfulness to this marriage covenant. In his human life, he danced with God. He delighted in God. He trusted in God. He found rest in God. He honored God. Yet also in his role as the bride. He took on the world's unfaithfulness. He went to the cross to put to death this repeated cycle of infidelity, of spiritual adultery, 
in his death, he ended the failed marriage, buried unfaithfulness in the grave. But God remained faithful even through the death of his own son. He sent his spirit to raise Jesus from the dead, bringing forth from the grave a brand new bride. So all who die to themselves in Christ will be united with him in his resurrection to become a faithful partner forever. He puts his spirit in you so you can trust God and turn to God. Unlike Israel, who was never able to turn because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have his spirit to turn in trust to enjoy God's love. Friends, God is always a faithful husband. If he has set his affection on you, he will never let you go. He will always pursue you. He will call you back when you fall. He will forgive you every time you fail and wander into the arms of pleasure of anything else. But now we have the spirit as well to turn back. There are so many temptations in this world always trying to draw us away from the affection of our faithful husband. Pornography lures our eyes away. Money makes us think that we can buy peace and happiness. Our medical establishment Establishment makes claims of health and safety. Government promises protection and prosperity. Food vows satisfaction. We seek affirmation in all of our social networks. Always looking for someone else to provide what only God can ultimately provide. All of these things are just knockoffs of the genuine article. With the Spirit. Now we are called to identify all those seductive temptresses out in the world. I'm not talking about actual women. I'm talking about the things that capture your affections. And turn you from intimacy with God. Only in a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. By His Spirit are we promised all the pleasure. All the joy. All the comfort. All the rest our hearts want. Only in Christ can we remain faithful to our vows, our profession of faith. And when we are, every day we can experience intimacy with Him when we're in His Word. Every week we get to explore and enjoy the blessings with God, the songs and the dance of His heart when we gather with His people. We get to taste, as married couples, intimate pleasure that God designed For us to enjoy so that we can display to the world what God does for us. If you are married, brothers and sisters, exalt God in your relationship and pursue Him above all. A passionate, pleasurable, peaceful, intimate relationship. So the world can see what God offers us in Christ. So our children can see What God offers us in Christ. But ultimately, until he returns, we must fight temptation. And turn when we fall until Jesus brings us home. 
Every day we need pictures of these faithful marriages. We need the message of the minor prophets. We need the memory of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to remind us that God is faithful to keep his promises. He will come back to take us home. Every day, until then, strive to turn from spiritual adultery and delight in God, your faithful husband. Let's pray. God, it brings such rest to my heart to know that you will always work out your promises. You are always faithful to your vows. In Christ, we have the guarantee of eternal pleasure when we are raised from the dead with him. I pray, God, that you would help us to rest in that truth. Knowing, Father, that you are faithful. And even if we fall, even if we are tempted, even if we stumble, you are not ashamed of us, but you will bring us back into your comforting arms. Help us respond now with this invitation to your table to eat your life-sustaining food. To be your family, a restored, spirit-filled family of brothers and sisters in Christ to celebrate your promises coming true. And we pray for Matt and Amy as they get married later today that their marriage would be a reflection of this beautiful work that you have done for us in Christ. Help us hold them accountable to that. Help our marriages become that picture that would call many to faithfulness in Jesus. Amen.